Well, good morning, church. Hope you guys are feeling good today. Getting ready to dive in today as we pause from our study through the book of Hebrews. We got all the way up to chapter 11, and we're going to start in chapter 12 as we enter into the new year. Uh, today, we're going to start a, a new kind of four-week series that will stop at Christmas Eve called Merry Crisis. And I'm calling it this because I think there's a little bit of an identity crisis when it comes to Christmas, and sometimes we can get a little confused. If we're not careful... When we think about Christmas, what our thoughts go to can be a little bit more consumed by Hallmark than really inspired by the Holy Spirit. It can be a little bit more defined by our traditions than really the biblical truth. And so today what I wanted to do was to take us to Scripture and, and really try to ask this big question. How, how did we get from the accounts of the incarnation, which is this hypostatic union of God putting on flesh, coming to dwell among us, this thing that we read about in, in, in the beginning parts of like Matthew 1, 2, and 3, and, and Luke 2, you know, the famous passages that we read uh, around our, our Christmas family gatherings, and, and even back to Jeff, John chapter 1, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and was with God, and it's this light penetrating into the darkness that is mankind, and I wanted to ask this question of how did we, how do we get from that, like that biblical narrative that accounts how Jesus came to earth, how do we get from that to all the things that are the, the, the things that we do and think about around Christmas? How did we get from there to here? Because when we think about a crisis, one of the things that is, is definitive of a crisis is, is, is confusion, okay? And I, I think Sometimes the church is susceptible to an identity crisis around this holy day, this holiday that is Christmas. And so we're going to walk through some different things as we navigate through this. Today is going to be a unique day. If you're here for the very first time, you're like, is it always like this? No. Um, normally we pick a passage of scripture or we pick a book of the Bible and we walk through that book of the Bible word by word, verse by verse. And today is going to be a little bit different. These next four weeks are going to be a little bit different. Today is going to be probably the most different of them all as I try to uh, be somewhat scholarly and have more of a teaching and then gospel is going to come at the end, I promise. Okay, so, so hold on tight and we can navigate through that. But I want to try to walk into some of the identity crisis that exists around this holiday season. Here's, here's where my heart is on this. Um, most of you who know me decently well, if you said, does Trent have Buddy the Elf or Ebenezer Scrooge tendencies? Most of you would say he has Ebenezer Scrooge tendencies and not Buddy the Elf tendencies. I'll, I'll never forget like my first or second Christmas here. Um, I think we were, we were probably in a sermon series. I don't know. You know how I am. We were probably talking about like the armor of God and spiritual warfare in December. And we were like two weeks into uh, December and I hadn't changed the stage. And we were still talking about spiritual warfare and demonic stuff. And, and I, you know, people were like, well, when are we going? You know, it was like, you, not everybody wasn't losing their mind, but they were like, this isn't, huh? You know, so I, I've had it on my agenda for, for a while now to go, okay, well, let's really lean into this and, and talk about what this story really is all about and, and how we should really come about it in our modern times, okay? So when we talk about crisis, here's how Cambridge would define a crisis, and I think we're going to hit on all three of these parts as we navigate through this. A crisis is a time of great disagreement, check, in 2023, confusion, check, 2023 and suffering check in 2023. So 
we, on all of these things that kind of are the criteria for crisis, we see those exist in our culture right now. And what I want you to understand is, is those are some of the very same things that existed when we get our biblical narrative of Christ leaving heaven's realm and entering into humanity. What we're gonna specifically lean into today is the identity crisis part, this aspect of confusion, all right? So here are some of the things we're gonna walk through and talk through, and again, like I said, we'll get to the gospel in, uh, towards, towards the end. The gospel's gonna be weaved all through it, but we'll get there. Boom. No, there we go. <clears throat> Here's what we're gonna talk about. Is Christmas celebrated in the Bible? Is December 25th a pagan holiday? Are Christmas trees pagan? Should Christians celebrate Christmas? Um, we're gonna, we'll talk about Santa a little bit too. And uh, the big question we're gonna lean into is what is the reason for the season? What really is this reason for the season? Now, again, if I'm gonna talk about all these things, we're gonna have to dive into some things that are outside of this. Okay, now this is, this is what the study of things that we either believe are true, that we should take as fact, or things that we shouldn't. It's the study of epistemology. It's the theory of knowledge, especially with regard to its methods, like how I come to know this and how it becomes valid in the scope. It's the investigation of what distinguishes justified beliefs from merely opinion, all right? Now, you probably knew this, I didn't have to say this. The internet is not the best place for epistemology. You guys were aware of that, weren't you? You know, you can put almost anything in there and find almost anything that proves some of the things that are in there. So, so what I wanna take us to is like, let's be able to go to God's word and let this be our, our factual authority for how we lead and govern our lives, okay? So speaking of God's word, this, this is where we are gonna start our conversation first. Is Christmas celebrated in the Bible? No, it's not. There's no account of, of people gathering together after Jesus rose from the grave and the early church starts of anything, and really the book of Acts is our only place for this, there's no account of people gathering together and celebrating this holy day and remembering Jesus' birth. Now, caveat, there's nothing about people celebrating Christmas, but the event that is celebrated at Christmas is totally talked about in scripture. It's all in there. It's, it's in our accounts that I just referenced to you. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. It's in the Gospel of Luke. It's there even at the beginning of John, and it's not in the greatest details there because you have to understand that he's writing to a Jewish audience. But here's what I'm saying. This story that is the Christmas story is without a doubt in here. And even in Scripture, we see that the first Christmas is totally celebrated. We see shepherds show up. To Mary and Joseph there in the manger slash cave type of thing that they're in. And, and they're coming to, to worship and adore this king. We see the wise men show up and they're doing the very same thing. We see a host of heavenly angels show up to those shepherds there in the field. And they are proclaiming, dare I say, even worshiping, letting this good news be known to these shepherds that the Messiah has landed essentially and he's here. So we see in scripture, what is this story of Christ come to earth? We see that fully on display. So... That uh, passage that I would show you to is, is John 1, 14. It says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So then the question becomes, <clears throat> is anything wrong 
with celebrating the coming of Jesus. Is anything wrong with celebrating the coming of Jesus? And again, no, because we see that happen there in Scripture. So now our question becomes, okay, what about when we do it? So that takes us to December 25th. And this is where we open the can of worms and play with them all. All right, so let's have some fun. Is December 25th pagan? Let's talk about this. In regards to this topic, if you type that in your Google search machine, you will find a litany of things that will all try to go into this. And I'm gonna just tell you something really early on. Uh, like I said about epistemology at the beginning, uh, the internet will show you what you're looking for more often than not. And you'll be able to find what you're after if you go there. The problem in, in searching through all of these things that where the pagan roots for Christmas come is, is there is a polarizing amount of evidence on both sides of these arguments, okay? Now, again, we live in a secular age, so which side of things do you think is going to have more when you go online? It's the secular side of things, correct? Now, when it comes to these pagan deities and these pagan roots that this holiday that we celebrate, commemorating the birth of Christ, has... Many of these roots, because they're rooted in, in pagan festivals and idol worship in the pantheon of, of Greek and different types of gods and goddesses, the factual historical evidence for these things are very, very spotty. Many of them lack any sort of historical evidence. But people will go online, and because one website says this certain thing and cites this other website who says this certain thing, everybody just takes them as factual truth. Well, the most, uh, the first kind of very common one here is they say, well, Christmas is just um, the Greek, uh, the one of the god Mithras, it's their birthday. And again, if you type in your Google search engine right now, when is Mithras' birthday, it will come up December 25th. But the more you investigate and the more you actually study is there are no historical evidence, factual things that actually take you to some sort of manuscript that actually says that that's where it is. You'll get competing dates the more you look into and the more you go into that. The next... One, and this is probably a little bit more common, is the celebration, the pagan celebration of Saturnalia. This is one I want to talk to you about a little bit. Now, this celebration, it occurred on December 17th through the 23rd. So we actually kind of missed our date. Now, here's something that Saturnalia and Christmas kind of has in common. They would go from house to house singing. The difference in Saturnalia is they would do it naked. All right, so Saturnalia, think about this, this festival to commemorate this specific time of the year, but like envision, well, don't envision too long, Mardi Gras. Um, that's what would happen, okay? Another thing that would happen here is human sacrifice. Uh, there's slave role reversal. And again, uh, this is where we have some things in common with our uh, modern celebration. Uh, there's drunkenness and immorality. But again, in America, it's not just December 25th. You can pretty much pick any day of the year. There's drunkenness and immorality, all right? That's just our culture. So again, when we go, okay, well, this is this pagan celebration, I, I, can, I, I look at these things and go, I'm not doing that at my house. And this is where we can go, okay, there's, there's, there's obviously roots here and there's things that are happening here, but I think it's a, a, a scholarly stretch to go all of the roots are from this, and we just as Christians borrowed from this to tag this on to these things. One of the more common ones is Nautilus, Sol, Invictus. Uh, what that means is the birth, Nautilus, Nativity, that's all that's kind of in there, the birth of the inconquerable sun. And this actually is celebrated on December 25th. Now, what's fascinating about this 
is the most early documentation that we have of Nautilus Sol Invictus. It's from the fourth century. And wouldn't you know, in this documentation, the earliest historical documentation we have of Nautilus Sol Invictus, it also mentions Christmas being on the same day. To which, when we go again to earliest historical documentation, not things that random people talk about on the internet, both Christmas on the 25th and Nautilus Sol Invictus are mentioned on the 25th, which kind of makes us go, well, was it the chicken or the egg? Which one came first? And who was copying who? One of the big legends around Christmas, and maybe you've heard this before, is that the Emperor Constantine, as he was making efforts to make basically a government-issued church, he repurposed Nautilus Sol Invictus, this, this changing of the seasons from the lunar side of things, he repurposed Nautilus Sol Invictus to become an event that was Christian. And that's where they put the date. But again, all of those things are a little bit too much for me to go, ah, we've been got. All right, Christians, we should just control, alt, delete everything about it. We just, we just can't do it anymore. It's, not, it's not, not for us anymore. So my thing is... Okay, say Constantine did this. And again, there's, whole, there's not a whole lot of historical evidence for either of these. So what? So what if the church repurposed a day that came from pagan society? I believe every day is God's. If we take a day that they go, oh, this is for this, and we repurpose it and we say, no, this is for this. And by and large, I don't know about you, but raise your hand and, and it's okay to admit this. Who of you in here had never heard of Nautilus Sol Invictus until this morning? Okay. Now, raise your hand if you've heard of Christmas before. <laughs> we won. All right? That's kind of where I, 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 would, I, would, I would land on some of those things. Now, the question becomes, well, why do we, like, again, 2,000 years removed from the whole entire thing, why in the world are we, on December 25th, why do we celebrate that as the birth of of Christ. Here's a few reasons. Why did the early church celebrate December 25th? Um, there is this, again, this is still just theory. The same way we have theories for Mithra and Saturnalia, even around our stuff, we have these two. This is where this is, why we're kind of wasting our time to, to get really up in arms along, around a lot of these things. There's this theory that a prophet, and again, if there ever was a prophet, Jesus was a prophet. He was a capital P prophet that all of the other prophets, whether it's Isaiah, all those other guys, would have found their uh, po being pointed to. There's a theory that a prophet died on the day he was conceived. Not the day he was born, but the day he was conceived. And I don't have to go into details about what that means. Y'all understand the difference between conception and birth, right? Now, here's where this comes into play. If Jesus, we know, we know when he died. We died at Passover. Okay, March 25th. So the way we get to December 25th is, is taking those nine months of the gestational period that Mary would have went through, and that's how they land at that day. Can you nod your head if some of that makes a little bit of sense to you? Okay, so that's, that's one of the theories as to how we land on December 25th. Um, maybe, I don't know. Another one is, again, what we talked about already, to repurpose pagan days. And again, so be it. Another one is... The Magi's arrival theory, they think that potentially the Magi showed up, but we know for sure that actually happened. They think maybe they showed up on the 25th. Um, one of the things that I think doesn't have a lot of historical evidence is the, uh, 
the story of the angel showing up to the shepherds, based off of what we know about that Middle Eastern culture, it would have been really unlikely that during that winter period of time, shepherds would have been in the field during December 25th, which again, kind of puts us to this place where we go, I don't know if that's, uh, it's historically accurate, you know, who knows what these crazy shepherds could have been doing. Again, these are the things that we can get caught up in. We can play around with the theories. And I think sometimes we can maybe get a little bit lost in those things. So the question becomes, is there anything pagan about December 25th? To which I would take you to two passages of scripture. First is Psalm 118, 24. And most of you know this. This is the day of the Lord. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. So what, what Psalm 118 is explaining to us is there is no day. Whether it's December 21st, December 23rd, 4th, 5th, December even 17th, if they want to throw it on 17th to just punch Saturnalia in the face, put it where you want it. There is no day that is a pagan day. Every day is the God of the universe's day. I will rejoice and be glad in whatever day it is. Hear me, even this October 31st. (laughs) Even that one, that's still the day the Lord has made, okay? And I can still rejoice and be glad in any of those. Now, Romans 14, I think, is a really good place for us uh, to go to and understand because I think this is the best uh, scriptural place for us to be able to really lean into what the Apostle Paul is helping the early church understand about days. Romans 14, verses 5 through 6. And this, this I believe, helps us, because at the end of the day, I'm going to talk through all this, and the, and the baseline is go, the, the end of the day question is how are we going to treat each other about these things? Okay, and, and the scripture in the New Testament in particular gives us some really good guidelines for that. Romans 14, five and six. It says, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains and honor the Lord and give thanks to God. Essentially what this is saying is, you wanna celebrate Christmas on December 25th? That's a day you wanna make holy to God? If that's what's in your heart, do that. If for some weird reason you wanna pick July 17th, do it on July 17th if that's a day that you wanna make holy for that. And again, we don't have enough scriptural evidence to go one way or the other, honestly. So he's saying, if you wanna make it that day, make it that day. If you don't wanna make it that day, don't make it that day. But don't think because you choose a certain day or don't choose a certain day that you have somehow become more holy or righteous or approved in the sight of God. So, point, whatever you do, whenever you do it, do it unto the Lord. Whatever you do, whenever you do it, do it unto the Lord. Now, let's talk about Christmas trees. We're gonna try to tackle this a little bit. Our Christmas tree is pagan. Um, most of the people, when they cite this, and again, you type this in your Google search engine, you're gonna get all sorts of stuff. Um, most of this goes back to the Roman cult of Asherah. Uh, they would say that uh, they would take trees down and put them in the home, they would decorate them. And again, when you actually go and look for historical, documented sources, approved by historians, backed up, research, peer-reviewed, there is little to know that gets factual evidence to these things. Again, there's plenty of people online. There's plenty of people on YouTube. And I'll just say this very clearly to you guys. Everybody that you hear talk on YouTube is not worth listening to, okay? 
Now, here's where some people, and again, this is, this is more not an um, external um, atheist or secularist speaking negatively about the church and bashing us for celebrating this day. This is more often than not an argument that comes from internal, um, from Jeremiah 10. Now, from Jeremiah 10, people will cite Jeremiah 10. Before I take you there, I, I, I can totally see how this would happen. And, and it would happen to me too if I was immature in my faith. If somebody is in my house and, and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm a baby Christian and I have a Christmas tree up and somebody comes into my house and they show me Jeremiah 10 because they feel bad for me for having a Christmas tree in my house. I can totally see how somebody would go, okay, we got to take that down. All right, and, you, and you'll probably get there too. Jeremiah 10, two through four. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed by the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. And again, this is all the tree stuff. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an ax by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it, uh-oh, with silver and gold and fasten it with hammer and nails and it cannot move. So like if, if you show up and, and somebody's bringing that to your attention and they're, and they're showing you that, in your mind you're probably going, well, that's obvious about Christmas trees because we're going to the forest, we're cutting down trees, we're decorating with silver and gold. I gotta cut this thing down. But here's what you need to understand. When the book of Jeremiah is written, when God gives this decree, Christmas hasn't happened. See, there's a saying in real estate, location, location, location. And there's a saying in Bible study, context, context, context. If you read one more verse, what you see contextually, he's not talking about Christmas trees. It's he's talking about idol worship and worshiping idols. So the next few verses show this. He says, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. And they have to be carried, for they can't walk. Don't be afraid of them, for they can't not, cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. And, and, and remember here, contextually, what was happening is craftsmen would go into the woods and they were skilled. It was a business to be able to go into the woods, cut down a tree, fashion it all the way off. It would have looked nothing like a Christmas tree, cover it in, in silver and gold, decorate it in a way that it could be put up in a house or carried in a pocket to be worshiped. And he's saying, listen, if you're doing that in the same way that you would look at a crow in a field, who is terrified of a scarecrow. You would look at the crow and go, you idiot, that thing can't move. What a stupid animalistic brain that doesn't realize that if you would just fly down and eat that food, nothing would happen to you. He says, in the same way, don't do what these pagans are doing. Thinking that something that, that has no legs, that has to be carried along, that you cut down from a created thing can do anything to help you if you worship it. It's God instructing his people not to worship. Now, I want to help you from a Bible study side of things, okay? I want to strengthen your faith and give you tools to actually study the Bible really, really well. Again, first key, context, context, context. When we don't go into context, we have a propensity to read the Bible anachronistically. What that means is I read the Bible anachronistically when I take a modern cultural issue and I read it into an ancient text. The way we study the Bible is supposed to happen in the reverse order. I take an ancient text within its context and I apply it to my modern life right now. It's called 
proof texting. I want something to be true. Let me go find something that proofs this thing that I want to be true. Now, let me give you one more guideline for studying scripture. Hopefully you've gotten this as we've gone through Hebrews. This portion of our Bible, we start really at Matthew. All right, you see this blank page right here that separates this Old Testament from this New Testament. All of this section right here, this big thick one that's at the bottom, this entire section was written to, was written to one culture and one nation. It is the rules and guidelines to govern one nation and one culture, the Hebrew people. All those laws, all those rules, all those regulations, and even, let me make this point to you, and even in one geographic location, if you as a, a new covenant believer tried to live out these rules and regulations and you live in Iceland, you can't even do these things it prescribes because those things in creation don't even exist in Iceland. So it's always dangerous when we try to figure out how do I live a new covenant life, a New Testament life, and I look for the rules and the regulations and the things to prove my new covenant life and I go to this portion first. And the only things I can cite are in only this portion. This is our governance for new covenant living. And again, that's the, that's the key there. One covenant was based off of law and works. One covenant and the new covenant, the one which we're under because of Christ's blood, is based off of love and grace. This is, this is the difference between what we live and, and how we work through this. So another side of, of this coin that people will, will lean into is, well, is there anything pagan about trees? And primarily what they're talking about here is primarily about pagan about trees, about being on a, on a stage or, or, or on an altar in a church service, trees being in a place like that. And there is a verse that if you go, churches shouldn't have trees, collection of trees on an altar, you can find an Old Testament verse that I wanna show it to you. I'll show it to you in the ESV and the King James Version. You shall not plant any trees as an Asherah besides the alt, beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. That's in the ESV. Let me explain. I'll, I'll read both of them. I'll explain what I'm saying. Thou shalt not, this is in the King James Version, thou shalt not plant thee a grove. This word grove, if you go to what this is actually translated into English from the Hebrew, is the word Asherah. ESV chose to just call it the false god. King James Version didn't identify the false god, just said grove, which is fine because they would have put these Asherah poles into what would look like a grove of trees. It's fine. You can pick whichever translation you want. I don't think either of them are dangerous. Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make thee. All right? So they would go to this and go, okay, you can't have a, a set of trees up there on the stage. Which again, I would go back and go to, let's talk through context. Okay? What was happening is there is a Canaanite, this is the people that the, the walls of Jericho fell down on, Canaanite people worshiped and sacrificed to a fertility goddess, Asherah. This fertility goddess would be ones that they would go to out in, uh, out in the, the hill country. You, you hear over in, in the Bible, you hear talk about high places. In the high places, they would set up 
poles, they would take trees, actually cut them down and then replant them. And then craftsmen would fashion these poles into this fertility goddess Asherah. They would give her breasts, they would give her some human features, and this was a fertility goddess that they would worship, that they would help, would bring them um, family fertility, that they would be blessed, the wombs of their women would be blessed, that it would give them prosperity, that it would allow their crops, a very agrarian culture, it would allow all this to happen. And so put yourself in the nation of Israel, they see these Canaanite people go out and worship and do these things, and they see it rain, and they see stuff happening. And so there's this tension between them of going, dude, we really need God to grow our crops. And like, we like Yahweh a lot, but man, we, that looks like it's working sometimes. And, and, and hear me, if there's an absolute famine, people get desperate. You're like, you know, they're, they're everybody in war. You know, people would say there's, there's no atheists in a foxhole at war. Somebody, I don't, whatever God is out there, some God help me. We see it in all the movies all the time. And in times of desperation, even the people of Israel would cry out to false gods. And God understands this and knows that his people have a propensity to wander away from him as a one true God. So what he tells them is any time that you go into one of these places and eradicate one of these pagan, false God-worshiping people, don't do what they do by my altar. Now, we have to, and we should have known this from Hebrews. What was an altar? They would set up a thing of rocks and they would set up a slab usually of a flat kind of roundish rock at the top. The altar was specifically the place where the animal was to be sacrificed. And so what God is doing here is going, don't put a bunch of Asherah poles by my altar. I don't want people to come over here and get confused. I don't want, I don't want people to wander up to these things and go, okay, well, you know, choose my own adventure. Do I want this God or this God? He's going, no, let my altar, the place you sacrifice, be where you sacrifice. Do not, get things, do not let things get confusing for people. And so he tells them, do not have any poles near these places. Now, altars. Let's talk about altars. It's huge. In the Hebrew, the word altar, the same word that's translated there in that passage in Deuteronomy, is the word mizbah. That altar means slaughter, sacrifice. Now, again, if you put your Bible from New Covenant to Old Covenant, New Testament to Old Testament, there's a lot more altars in the Old Covenant. You will see the word in Greek in our New Testament, altar. It will be in there. But it's about 10 to 1. But when it is in there, it's translated this way. It's a Greek word, thusiasterion. And it means the place of sacrifice. The place of sacrifice. Now, I want to help you understand something. And I want to take you to the book of Hebrews. <laughs> you thought you were getting out of it. <laughs> I want to show you something, all right? And I'm going to take you there. You should have already got this. You should have immediately, as you saw that verse, you should have had this in mind and go, that's not what that's talking about. Let me take you to Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, I was going to quote Christ here. Christ said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, things you would take to an altar, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, still talking to Jesus, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Jesus is just saying, I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. 
Now the author of Hebrew jumps in here. He goes, when he said, when Jesus said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings or burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He's talking about Jesus saying, God, I've come to do, Father, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, he's talking about the Hebrew priest that still existed during that time, that the Hebrew people were going, do I still go back and sacrifice at the temple on their altars to cover my sins? Or has Jesus really cleansed me of all of my unrighteousness? He's saying they're still rocking and rolling over there. He's saying even those priests stand daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All right, let me explain this to you. What this means is, and I'm sorry to frustrate or bust the bubble of my Baptist friends, my Methodist friends, my Catholic friends, my Episcopalian friends, my Anglican friends, my agnostic, well, they don't have any altars. Um, anybody who would call this thing right here or anything that's happening up here, this is why you don't hear us talk about this at MCC. You don't hear altar calls at MCC. You don't hear me beckon people to come down to the altar because an altar is a place of sacrifice. An altar is a place of slaughter. So if we're new covenant people, you have one altar. There it is. This is not an altar. This is a stage where the gospel is proclaimed from. That Roman tool of torture is the once and for all altar of God's people where the sins of mankind were dealt with once and for all. That passage in Deuteronomy, as beautiful and as important as that passage is, that passage is pointing to this person who gave his life on this cross to repurpose this pagan tool of torture into what now identifies us as followers of the way, now identifies us as people who saw something so wicked, so pagan, so evil, that it can now be looked at as a place where the grace of Jesus is radically on display for the people who would follow after him. And man, oh man, is that worth celebrating. So to, to wrap up our questions around trees, is there anything pagan about trees? Yes. If you make something pagan about trees. If you worship that tree, good God, it's pagan. But what I don't see in scripture is on the third day, it doesn't say, and God consulted with a pagan deity to see if it was okay if he created all the trees that were gonna be on earth. That's not what it says. God is the ruler. He's the creator of all the trees. There's nothing pagan about trees unless you make trees pagan. Is there anything pagan about putting a tree in your house? Yes. If you make something pagan about putting a tree in your house, if you put it in your house and you start worshiping, yeah, for sure. You, you've, you've made a God out of that thing. 
Is there anything pagan about decorating a tree? Does it somehow, when I put some tinsel and some red silver balls on it, does it somehow Satan enter into it and come and get me? No. Unless you start worshiping that thing. Then for sure, it is. So, what was pagan? Because I, I do believe there, there, there's a, there is particular evidence. When you go back and you look at the history of trees, was there a period of time where maybe some people had some of these things in their house? Even if, play that out and say like historically, they put these in their house and they worship these things on trees. What was pagan about it? The purpose. The purpose. It's the purpose that determined what was pagan. So let me talk to you and I can't, I can't prescribe anything for you and your family outside of what scripture already does. Let me tell you about my family. We have a nativity scene in our home and we have a Christmas tree in our home. The purpose for the tree in my home, and I would encourage you, if you're gonna do things in your house, especially around this season, this season more than any other season, you should approach with caution for your family because the true enemies of, I believe, Christmas is really not even paganism. It's consumerism and secularism. Our job is to make sure everything in our home will, will point people to Christ. So for us, our Christmas tree, the way that we have uh, designed it or the way we ordain it is we put pictures and ornaments that remind us of our family. So on that Christmas tree, there's pictures of tiny little fat-faced Ezra and Titus. On that Christmas tree is a kayak from Jessica and I's first Christmas together that we were able to spend in the Florida Keys. On that tree is a bike from, to commemorate that year was the one that our kid learned how to ride a bike. On there is baseball and bats from the, that, that Christmas was a year that one of them started playing baseball for the first time. And as I put that up and I sit in my living room, I'm able to look at the tree, the time when we hang them, and then the, the days and the weeks from there, we're able to look at this tree and I see it and I go, goodness gracious, the grace it is to have a family blessing like this. Jesus, you are too good to me. The man I am does not deserve these boys. The man I am does not deserve this wife. What a gift. So, I advise you, if you're gonna put one up, do it with a purpose. If you have no purpose other than just, I guess, tradition, I would question that. And if you're here and you're like, I don't wanna do a tree, I, I, I wanna uh, just have a manger scene in my house, great, you have full-blown the freedom to do that. I would, I would, if you're going to have to pick one, I'm going to be honest with you. If you're going to have to pick one, which I think is dumb, don't pick one. You know, if you're going to do only one though, put a manger scene in your home. In a place where the gospel isn't readily proclaimed, where I don't think you're walking into your house and every, every day before you guys go to bed, you know, rallying everybody together. All right, let's walk through the tenets of the gospel today, guys. You can have a visible representation of what that means, which is awesome. But, this, and again, this goes back to how we love and care for each other. This is an open-handed issue. And you're not less holy if you refuse to have a tree. So you tree people, don't walk into somebody with no tree's house and go, oh, you're just super legalistic and religious. I just wish you'd unbutton a little bit, goodness gracious. And then you people who are like, I'm not gonna have a tree. I know some of the things, you know, that I, I've read this article or I saw this thing online and, and I, me and my family are not gonna do that. You have a tree in your house, people. Shut your mouth and let them have their manger sing. Like, this is how we just love and care. I, I, it's, it's simple, okay? Now, here's the fun one. To Santa or not to Santa? Okay? Now, like I said, you guys know I tend towards Scrooge and not by the elf. And uh, those of you who know me real well, uh, you know the Shoemake boys are, uh, don't know about no Santa. 
Um, they, they're not with him. And so what I don't want you to hear right now is I hate your childhood, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'll walk you through how I got to the place where, and again, I grew up, me and Jessica both grew up. Jessica grew up the, the child of a Southern Baptist pastor. And both of us grew up in homes where there was a Santa, okay? Both of us landed on the conclusion for our house. As we maybe looked at our boys, we are like, if we put Santa in our house, it's gonna distract them from Jesus. That was a decision we made. And here's why, I wanna walk you through that. If I tell my boys, if you do good, you'll get good. Does that sound like the old covenant or the new covenant? Sounds like the old covenant. I'm trying to raise new covenant kids. Don't understand grace, mercy, and compassion. What I didn't want Titus to do, because he totally would have been the kid who would have done it, was to climb on top of the counter where Jessica bakes these amazing cookies during the holiday season and get up there and go, and it's in little boy brain internal dialogue. Ooh, I want one of these cookies so bad. But I better not get one of these cookies because Santa's watching and I won't get good stuff. I didn't want my kid to be obedient to me because he thought some mythical creature was paying attention to him. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not judging. Some of you, you have the freedom to have this. I, I would just say, this is one of those ones where I, I would say, be cautious if you do go to great lengths to make Christmas focus totally on Christ and, you, and dare I even say like, you help your kids understand that every gift is a gift from God. I felt like this was too much of a stretch for me in my house. Okay, now it's yours to govern your own family. Here's what I'll say. When it comes to Trisha, uh, uh, Christmas, there's a tension and the thing we gotta balance between is symbols and distractions. Christmas tree, lights, the presents. I wouldn't necessarily call Santa a symbol. It's a mythological character. Um, your best attempts to go find, and I, I dug into, so you know, I'm you know, even playing field. I dug into everything around St. Nicholas. There's much, just as much crazy stuff on that guy as there are Mithra, honestly. Um, so I, I wouldn't take that all the way to the bank with me. Um, he, let, me let me give you this scenario. Maybe this will help guide you as you, as you, I'm really talking to parents here and grandparents here because when the Bible talks to us about things we should abstain from or things we should do, it gives a lot of grace in the New Testament for us to leverage our individual freedoms. But the, the caveat to that is it says abstain from your freedom if it causes a weaker brother or sister to stumble. Now, we can read that and think, well, that's just, you know, that dummy on the aisle down the row from me, you know, who doesn't really understand the truth about the Bible. You can read that and understand that. I read that and I, my mind goes to kids, okay? And there's, I don't know if you read this verse, but the consequences for causing a kid to stumble is you will have a millstone tied around your neck and you'll throw, be thrown into the bottom of the sea. <clears throat> Doesn't sound super fun. So we have to be really careful, not just with how we teach, but how we teach kids. So if you're, here's the scenario. You're at Target, okay? Or Walmart, if you're a Walmart family. Um, you're at one of those stores and it's June 13th, nowhere near Christmas, June 13th. And you see a Christmas tree. You're there with your kids and y'all see a Christmas tree decorated. And one of your kids goes, what's that there for? And you leverage the moment and you go, well, what is that? And they go, that's a Christmas tree. And then you say, well, what's Christmas all about? 
and they say, Jesus, coming to earth? You're probably doing a pretty good job of letting your purpose with these symbols point to Christ. Now, June 13th, you're at Walmart and you're there with your kid and for some reason there's a Christmas tree in one of the aisles. And your kid goes, what's that doing there? And you go, well, what is that? And they go, that's a Christmas tree. And then you go, well, what is Christmas about? And your kid goes, Santa, bringing me presents. Then you need to get the Christmas tree out of your house. Then you need to change your story. That's my conviction. Again, you take me for what you want. That's when the symbol has become a distraction. Okay? So that's, that's all the stuff around Christmas. Okay? Hopefully we can walk with grace and truth. Now, let's get to the gospel. Should Christians, should Christians celebrate Christmas? I ain't got time for all that. Or that. Or that. Or that. Let's get here. What is the reason for the season? What's the reason for the season? I hear y'all whispering. I hear y'all saying Jesus, but I hate to break it to you. The reason for the season is not Jesus. This is that one church answer that you can't get right by just going, Jesus. Track with me on this. If you had just been perfect, all of creation, all of humanity, we had just, God says to Adam and Eve, hey, y'all got everything you could want here. You're naked and unashamed. There's a river with gold all up in it. I got animals just at your beck and call. Just live and hang out. And they just do it. They don't, not that kind. But like, they just do life. They, they just enjoy it and things go great. And we're here. Nobody's been worshiping idols. Nobody's cutting down trees, pretending to worship trees. Nobody's killing babies. None of those terrible things had ever happened. What do you need Jesus for? If we get it all right, why Jesus? See, I would make this argument. The reason for the season is not Jesus. Do you know what the reason for the season is? Sin. Sin is the reason for the season. Now, you don't want to put that on a decorative pillow at your house, all right? <laughs> and that's why we don't. We go to the secondary part where we like, sin really is the reason for the season. Thank goodness for Jesus. Track with me here. This is why I called this series Merry Crisis, because when you think Merry Christmas, you have to understand that from the scale of divinity to humanity, there was a giant crisis. And I'm not just talking about what was going on down here. For sure there's crisis happening there in the, in the Jerusalem area, in that area of the Middle East and all over the world at zero you know, AD when Jesus comes into the world. For sure crisis up there, for, or for sure crisis down there in the lower story that is humanity. But I want you to understand something. There's also crisis up here. God's going, these are my beloved children. I created them to image and to glorify me. I created them to have dominion down there. I created them to provide and protect and to, to do these things down there that pointed and magnified and glorified me. And even from divinity side of thing, there is a crisis. I want the garden back. I want my kids back. I love them so much. I want them back. He's in crisis too. And the solution to the crisis is I'm going to send my son because my son is the only solution to their sin. So the reason for the season, the reason for the manger, 
the reason for your lights on your house, the reason for your tree, if you do not from this moment forward see the reason for the season as your sin that separated you from God and him sending his son to be treated like he was not the son of God so that you could be treated like a son daughter of God, you've missed the season. If you just take this as a season to go, we're gonna buy some gifts, we're gonna buy some presents, we're gonna do some stuff and they're gonna slap Jesus on there, show up at a Christmas Eve service. You missed it. You have to understand that this isn't a season where all is calm and all is bright. The first Christmas and the true message behind Christmas is everything was in crisis. And Jesus gets sent directly into that crisis and becomes Christ child that brings a solution. I'm gonna end by reading together this verse that preaches this for me better than I could ever say it. Go to the book of Ephesians. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Ephesians chapter two. This is the reason for the season. I, you wanna get a real biblical Christmas going? Read Luke two this year, and then fast forward to Ephesians two with your family. Ephesians two. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's a crisis if there ever was one. In which you once walked, following the prince of power of the air, you were guided and led by Satan, spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, that's not just talking about them in here, that's all, all us Gentiles that are trying to get in on this new covenant thing. Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desire of our body and the mind we were by nature children of wrath like the whole rest of mankind. And I love verse four, where the light shines into the darkness. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Amen. And this is not your own doing. You couldn't hang something up or not hang something up or choose to participate in something and not participate in something and it make you more righteous or holy than your person on the road with you. It is by grace, through faith alone, that you are saved by grace and sustained by grace. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So, I don't know what crisis maybe you felt like you walked in here with, but it did every one of our lives, you're gonna hit a crisis of faith. And it's whether or not you're gonna put faith in what this just said is true or not. And whether or not you acknowledge that your good deeds, your works, you're abstaining from or doing to cannot save you. It is only by Jesus. It's only by his sacrifice. And when we think about Christmas, yes, remember a newborn child in a manger, but don't get lost in the manger. 
so much so that you forget the cross. And don't get lost in the cross so much that you forget the empty tomb where he defeated death to pay the price to adopt you into the family so that the cosmic crisis of the separation between humanity and divinity could be solved once and for all. So that now Jesus stands and the empty grave is an open door that says, to whomever would come through me, come into my father's family. Crisis averted, but only through faith. Today I'm gonna gonna baptize a woman of God and what you're gonna see on display is that very thing, a crisis averted through faith in her father and the sacrifice of a son and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. If you wanna be baptized today too, water's warm, we got everything you need. Meet me up there. I'd love to do that as well. To the rest of you, we're gonna receive communion. What communion represents is a place where the final sacrifice on the altar of the cross took place. So now your life, where you sit, becomes a place where you can either choose to or withhold, surrender to the one who surrendered it all for you. As you commune with him, maybe even ask him to enter into the crisis that you're in. Be calm, be peace. To resurrect a faith that's all but burnt out and set you on fire for the real meaning of the season. That your sin is paid for in full. And you're his, and by faith he's yours. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We praise you. You're so good. You're so true. You're so unworthy. We thank you for your body broken for us, your blood poured out for us for their forgiveness of sins. I pray as we get ready to watch Shanera be baptized, we're able to see on display that you do make all things new. They're returning soon. And if there's still breath in our lungs, it's not too late to turn. So I pray that you be with the person who's hanging by a thread today or the person whose heart's grown cold. That you would allow saving faith to be awakened in their heart. And they would surrender to you today. Maybe surrender to baptism. Maybe surrender to forgiveness. But surrender fully to you. In your name.